1: the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org.
0: Hello, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a podcast about news and ideas from the Shalom Harbin Institute of North America. My name is David Zb. Kalman, and I'm scholar in residence and director of New Media at the Shalom Harbin Institute. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you might hear my name in credits as the producer of the show for today's episode. I'm in front of the mic rather than behind it as guest host filling in for Yehuda Kurtzer. So in my off hours, I used to spend a lot of time in the world of photography, working in a home darkroom. And the idea is that the best moment to take a picture is not when you know how you feel about the subject of this photograph, but actually when you are feeling quite ambivalent about it, when you don't know whether the thing that you're photographing is something good or bad. And you're trying to discover in that moment how you feel about it because it's actually in those moments that you are forced to grow and you're forced to spend time on a media that would otherwise be consumed quite passively and quite quickly. I think about that in the context of the Jewish media landscape because I've noticed in my own media consumption habits moved in two directions. On the one hand, I sometimes feel like I'm in the mood just to hear things that will affirm my position and help flush it out. And on the other hand, I really seek out ideas and opinions that are going to challenge me and are going to bring me into conversations that I would not otherwise have where I'm actually not sure in advance how I feel about a subject. I think in that latter camp, the guest for today's show is really an exemplar of how to do this properly. He's someone who I think is quite good at having these conversations and at broaching extremely important and very difficult questions with people that he actually knows in advance he's going to argue with and disagree with, or he needs to hold their opinions out of them. So I'm really excited to talk with this guest today. David Lichtenstein is founder and CEO of the Lightstone Group, a large real estate investment company that, as far as I can tell, is his main job, but he is also, and this is the reason why I'm glad to have him on the show today, The host of Headlines, a podcast of weekly events viewed from a lens of Jewish law that has accumulated more than 1.6 million downloads since its launch in 2014. I want to talk about headlines, but for the moment let me just say that I've listened to a lot of podcasts in the last decade, and as the space has grown more crowded, there continues to be nothing that resembles the show. In addition to the show, David has written two books about viewing current events through the lens of Jewish law, published by the Orthodox Union, not to mention several other books besides. So, David, thank you so much for being on the show
1: today. Nice to be here, David.
0: So let's talk about headlines. I've been in the podcasting business since 2013, and I've seen the style of podcast slowly become increasingly uniform as the industry develops. Headlines, though, just seems like it's doing its own thing. It has riddles connected to Torah and halakha. It's longer as podcasts have become increasingly short. And it's really basically the only podcast that I know that contains both Aramaic and Yeshivish English mannerisms. So I'm curious if we can start by just having you reflect a little bit on the experience of creating the show. What spurred you to create it? What surprised you along the way? And what do you like about the medium itself?
1: So even though I run a fairly large real estate firm, my background is yeshiva. And I actually never went to college. So I guess you could say my doctorate is in Talmud, Talmudic philosophy and law. And we've worked under... For really quite a while, always in the United States, under the axiomatic impression that you're either a scholar or a business person. And I don't agree with that metric. And I think that we were supposed to live in both worlds. Most of the sages were working people. Rabbi Yochanan Hasandla, right? The Gemara talks about the woodcutter or Gamliel. And when he had the big machoik, it was Rabbi Shur. Rabbi Shur was a pchami, he, he made charcoal for a living. And it wasn't the Rammamites because there weren't anybody who would support them. It's because the Torah is instructions. So imagine if you landed on an island where there was this huge set of instructions. One group of people took the instructions and they took those instructions and they used them to work. And the other people spent the rest of their lives just studying the instructions. We could see that, at least the way the Ramam understands, is that wasn't the intent. So I saw this as sort of the natural step forward. But when you leave yeshiva, and I'm an extrovert, extroverts have a need to interact. To Some people learn just by reading. Some people learn by speaking, by interacting, by discussing, which has always been the yeshiva way. I remember when I learned in, in Lakewood, they brought some reporter. It was, a, it was a woman, I don't remember, from some national station. And she walked into the basement and she said, why is everybody screaming at each other? I said, that's how Talma how discussions works. Everybody has an opinion and they state their opinion and they argue their opinion. So rather than walk away, I said, I am gonna, I wrote, but I didn't find writing as fulfilling as that, you know, the dialectic. And I said, let me put it on a podcast. So I, I did it mostly for me and My poor audience had to struggle along with my predilections, but that's really the story behind it.
0: I think that's really helpful, and I'm all on board on this notion of a person who is neither just in the business world nor in the learning world, but is actually bridging those two. I'm curious, so you've been producing the show for a while. There's things that I know you can do within the medium of podcasting that are more difficult to do in other media, in part because people listen to podcasts discreetly, It's private. You can tell what book someone's reading. It's harder to tell what podcast someone is listening to. And as a result, people have a little bit more freedom in terms of the podcast they listen to than they might. They're just kind of putting their books on a shelf for all to see. I'm curious how you think about the content that goes into the show and if you've been surprised in any way by the reaction that I assume you've received from listeners.
1: So I think the content is in line. You know, when you go to Yeshiva, the great Lithuanian Yeshivas in the world, which I've been to many of them. A lot of it is very obtuse and obscure, like Yovamis, the legitimate wife. It doesn't happen anyway. We haven't done that in 2000 years, right? But it's the tyrant. Studying the tyrant is a reward in itself. But I think that when people go to work or when they are busier, I think that very deep and abstract philosophical, complex theories are hard to tune into. So people, just from a practical level, want to speak about things that, I'll give you an example. I went between Mincha and Meirev. I was in listening to a, a rabbi speaking, and he was talking about the concept of Bein HaShemoshesh, which is twilight for a Friday right before the Sabbath. We light the candles, but really it's twilight. So it's not clear exactly when Shabbos starts. So the Shulchan Aruch holds, the, the code of Jewish law says that during that period, laws that are only prohibited by the, the sages, they're called a, a drabanim, right? You could do if there's a need for the Sabbath, whereas laws that are prohibited, which means from the Torah, right, the one of the 613 commandments, those you would not be allowed to do during the twilight area. So this rabbi is talking about an obscure case, like, let's say you forgot on the table something that's muktzah that you can't move, would you be able to move it? The crowd is sort of like sleeping. So I said, Rabbi, what about this case? A Tesla. It's electrical. So according to most opinions, driving on the Sabbath would only be uh, prohibited from, according to the sages. It's not one of the uh, Torah, 600 You're late to show. Could you drive your Tesla to show? Suddenly like, oh, everybody pops up. Really? Could you drive your Tesla? So I find that when you can take laws that are relatively complex or obscure and plug them into people's day-to-day lives, suddenly the Torah becomes alive. Halacha becomes alive. So I come home a lot of times. My work is often very demanding. I'll come home at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock. And for me to open up a Gemara Yuvamis is very difficult.
0: It's not just you.
1: But when I open up a Babakama, which is all about damages, and you start discussing, well, and there's every possible thing you can learn from it. If I send the virus from my computer to your computer, would you have to pay, according to Jewish law? Now suddenly... This is alive, a virus and the different opinions. Is it Tamun? Is it Aish? Is it Kairacham I'm going, and suddenly I'm surrounded by a cacophony of opinions. On my right hand side is the great sage Rashi who lived in the 12th century. And he's considered the baseline of opinion of what the Talmud is. And on the left side is the Balai the French sages of the 12th, 13th and 14th centuries who almost always disagree, many of whom it was their grandfather. And then you open up the rush and then you open up the spanish sages and see what they do you go to the rajva and the ritva and then suddenly you start saying oh all the derivative opinions of the 15th century in the 60s see how the laws layered on and how is it relevant how okay and suddenly i'm sitting with 50 people around me debating and everybody's stridently saying their opinions do you have to pay for the virus? How much do you have to pay for the virus? Do I just have to pay for the value of his computer? What about his software? What about if he forwarded that virus to somebody else? Am I responsible for the other person's damages and the for holes And suddenly I could stay in my study. I could get home at nine and be there till two in the morning. And when my wife or somebody comes knocking on the door, I don't even know what time it is anymore. So I think that taking the Torah and making it where it's, practical and in front of you, both from a philosophical point of view. And it's also examining a lot of contemporary issues through the sages of the Talmud. And in many ways, the Talmud was like thousands of years ahead of anybody. I'll give you an example. Do you know that as recently as 1970, and I, I could be off a little but you could Google it, there was a fire engine in England was going to a fire. And there was a red light and they could see on the other side a building burning and a guy in the third floor who was going to die. So the fire engine went through the light, you know, England, are very proper, and they saved the guy. And a policeman gave the fire engine a ticket. Of course, as recently as 1970, there was no concept of a v'hem, that the sanctity of human light overrides almost all laws with exception, right? Where you can hurt somebody else, et cetera. And they changed the law because of that incident to say, wait, let's get some perspective here. But you know, as recently as the 1700s, if somebody was attacked and in defending themselves, they killed the attacker, the person was considered a criminal and at one point they were put to death. And as late as the 1800s, all their property went to this queen. So things that halakhically and Talmudically and, and we have taken as granted for thousands of years like, it took Western society ages to catch up to.
0: So that approach that you're highlighting, I feel comes across loud and clear in the podcast and also in the books. And I actually had a couple of examples that I wanted to talk with you about specifically because you're not the only person who is trying to apply Jewish law to questions of technology. I think that's very in vogue. It's something that I personally am really interested in. But you're doing more than that. You're also trying to think about the relationship between halacha. and and current events in America, including really fraught questions, really fraught political questions. And so I wanted to bring up a couple of examples. In the first headlines book, you talk about the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012 by George Zimmerman, in which George Zimmerman was found not guilty in part because of Florida's standard ground law, which meant that he didn't have a duty to retreat, even if he felt that Trayvon Martin was threatening him. And in your book, you kind of bring this into conversation with rabbinic discussions of self-defense and its limitations. And then more recently, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you use the example of the Pilagesh Begiva, so a biblical story in which a man is outraged by the rape and the murder of his concubine, and he cuts her body into pieces and sends them throughout the land of Israel, basically in order to shock the various tribes into caring enough about this crime to do something about it. And you use this, if I understood the way you were trying to use it, to suggest that there may be actually some amount of legitimacy to the violence that took place as part of some of the protests after those two murders. And I think what you're suggesting there is that the tour recognizes that there are societal problems that are so large that some amount of violence is actually a reasonable response. So I've noticed this framework. At the same time, I've noticed that very often when you bring guests on the show, you're trying to kind of ask them whether the frameworks that you've proposed are successful, like whether they agree with them. And I've noticed that they're often like a little bit skittish around saying like, well, you know, maybe it applies, maybe it doesn't apply, but they're often a little bit more hesitant than you are to kind of make a definitive statement one way or the other about whether it is possible to take halachic knowledge, Jewish legal knowledge, and really bring it directly into conversation with something that appeared in the headlines yesterday. So I'm curious if you can reflect a little bit about that particular kind of use of Jewish legal knowledge, and if you have a theory about why your guests might be more wary of it than you are.
1: Okay, so I think it was uh, Trotsky, I could be wrong, who said What you write with a lead pencil, you can't erase with a steel eraser, right? And I think that many of my guests are leading halachic experts, and you're applying very complex overlays, which have very many details and circumstantial issues, and they don't want to be on the record as saying, like, without a really thorough examination, yes, this is that. Because the next thing is they've established precedent that gets trotted out in so many, I mean, and I can give you an example, both legally and halakhically, how precedents, if they're not really exact, can be so twisted. And I'll give you an example. Judge Coney Barrett, now on the Supreme Court, I think her first case was some adoption agency the city of Philadelphia versus a Catholic adoption agency. And the Catholic adoption agency would only give their children to couples that were not of the same sex. And Philadelphia passed a law, an LBGTQ law, that you cannot discriminate. Same sex couple want a child, you can. So somebody remarked to me, well, that's gonna be a layup for her. She's of course gonna say that they have a right to respect their religion. Now I'm a Talmudist, right? So I said, really? Now let's take that law. You have a right to protect your religious beliefs. So if you're a Catholic and you walk into a Jewish bakery and the guy is very pious and he believes, you know, Catholicism is all twisted, now would did you be able to say to Judge Barrett, you know, based on your law, I'm not gonna serve you. So just as an example, it's so easy when you set precedent, you really have to be very thoughtful as to do it in a way where if it's used in other situations, you've in your ruling basically laid out, these are the parameters and these are the details. And this is why, so that otherwise, you can end up with a real train wreck. So I think for a rabbi to come on, what for me is a discussion, bringing up very valid points of historical thing that would create that conversation If you were to rule that way, it's not going to be on a radio program or a thing. It's going to be with a lot of thought and a lot of detail. So I think that's a lot of hesitation.
0: I think what you're describing actually is a phenomenon that I've noticed as well in halakhic literature over the past, say, 50 years, where in some ways it is easier for people who are not in positions of power to have a somewhat richer or more contemporary or more definitive conversation about Jewish law, in part because the stakes are lower or in part because they're speaking to individuals rather than they're speaking to groups. And I think that goes to your point earlier about the kind of virtue of being both a businessman and a scholar at the same time.
1: Just for the record, I used to very often put on, I said, the purposes of these programs are not for making halachic rulings. They're to create a conversation and now go do your homework, speak to your rabbi. If you're a yeshiva boy and you know how to learn, take out the books, but certainly do not make rulings. I mean, this week we had on, Rabbi David Feinstein, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's son, passed away, and his expertise was in life and death situations. Like, do you pull the plug on people who are in comas? So, like, please do not try this at home, whatever you're listening to on this broadcast, right? Whether a mother can take an organ that was harvested illegally, please, this is not do not try this out, this is complex, I'm just doing it to lay it out there, what the type of issues, his way of thinking without getting into the details, which really God is in the details, right?
0: It's interesting, those disclaimers of like, consult your local rabbi, I know is also the stance of the Journal of Halakha and Contemporary Society, which I think closed a year ago or a little over a year ago. And I wonder if there's kind of like a, you know, a little bit of a wink in saying that, in that the way that people today often consume information about Jewish law is much more individual, and they in fact do take it quite seriously, whether the people who are writing those opinions say they should be taking it seriously or not. Hi, I'm Jenny Noticeless. Senior Development Officer at the Shalom Hartman Institute. With so many of us home and looking for ways of being in community, we have launched Hartman at Home, a full calendar of online public events running through the end of 2020, taught by incredible faculty like Michal Buiton, Yassi Klein-Halevi, Chana Pinchasi, Tal Becker, and Rachel Korazim. You can find out more and register for any of these programs by going to our website, shalomhartman.org. I wanted to bring you back to thinking about the pandemic and the way that you responded to the pandemic within the podcast. So from what I've seen from the very beginning of the pandemic, you took the danger of indoor synagogue gatherings very seriously. And you strongly criticized people who secretly gathered to form clandestine minyanim. I think at one point, even using the legal term rodaif to refer to someone who's actively trying to murder another person. At one point, I think you also played a recording of a Jewish nurse giving a vivid description of the refrigerated morgue trucks parked outside of her hospital, pleading with people to wear a mask and maintain social distancing. Certainly, you've seen that a large portion of the Orthodox community has reacted strongly against mask mandates and restrictions on in-person gathering. What, in your mind, explains the gap between these facts on the grounds and the seemingly very clear Jewish legal regulations that prioritize preserving life over almost all parts of Jewish law?
1: So that's a complex question, and I think that there's many different parts to it. I think one part is is that the overwhelming mass of Orthodox Jews are Trump supporters. And the fact that the president openly derided mask wearing, never wore a mask, had many super spreader events in the White House, et cetera, so people followed by example. And it became highly politicized and rather be seen as a plague, which is what it is, who was seen this? I have a friend who's not Jewish. He's in the wireless business. He builds wireless towers. He was in Florida and he's a very bright fellow. So he went to the beach with his wife for vacation and he was wearing a mask. And he said, people were laughing. And they said, oh, you must be Democrat. So this is in Daytona beach. So I think that here in the Northeast, we don't recognize that, but it was political. I was telling somebody I know who was like one of this party and somebody in their family was dying. I said like, Why don't you just tell them to sign on to the Republican ticket and the corona will go away? And that's how absurd it was. But it wasn't just a a Jewish thing, an Orthodox thing. But I think that there are other elements to it as well.
0: Before you get to the other elements, I want to just kind of press on this for a second. I'm totally with you that there's a very clear political component to it. But the communities of Orthodox Trump supporters also have a very clear allegiance to halacha, to Jewish law. And I'm curious how, having spoken to many people on your show who are skeptical of mask mandates, I'm curious what your sense is of how those two things interact, that political affiliation on the one hand and a Jewish legal mandate, which seems to look for, which seems to require something quite different.
1: I mean, we've heard from Trump, it's the flu. The flu kills hundreds of thousands of people every single year. And this is a flu. So when you get this type of disinformation from the president of the United States, I mean, you're not hearing it from some Ku Klux Klan leader or some you know, UFO advocate. It's from the president on all the major networks from the White House, and he says it's the flu. And there are many such events. And he held many super spread events because he said it's the flu, right? So that's from just from a medical point. And I still get from people, it's the flu. I said, you know, a few thousand Orthodox people died the new grade in New York area from COVID. Do you know anybody who died of the flu? Well, and the president said it's the flu. So that's, I think there are more complex parts to it too. I think one part of it is, if you look back since year zero, right? Almost since then, the Byzantines, the Jews have always been persecuted by governments. Wasn't individuals. I don't know where your grandparents come from. Russia, I imagine, they had the pale of settlement. A Jew was not allowed into vast, vast swaths of the Soviet Union. There were certain splinter areas. To go to St. Petersburg, they had to get like a visa, right? In Poland, I mean, they had the the white laws. I mean, there were a hundred industries, Jews were blacklisted. They weren't allowed to become a doctor. You weren't allowed to become a lawyer. So we've lived through 2000 years of discrimination, genocide, Holocaust, pogroms, Cholmenitsky, We live in a a tiny bubble. It's real, you know, the premier of China spoke in Harvard around a few years ago. And I don't know what the context was, but one of the students asked him, what do you think of the French Revolution? Liberté, And he thought for a minute, are you talking the Chinese go back 3,000 years? And he thought, and he said, it's too early to tell. Now, the Industrial Revolution is 200 years ago, right? So when you ask a, a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, this government, this loving government is enforcing laws for your benefit, and they're coming from a different world. They're coming from our history. I mean, we celebrate Hagim that go back 3,000 years, right? And we celebrate rabbinic things that go back two. We live in a, a world that's, you know, you take somebody from the street, and you ask him, who was your grandfather? Jeez, I don't really know my grand-grandfather. You pick your average Orthodox Jew, he'll give you a lineage that goes back to Abraham, right? So now you're asking him, in this bubble, this 50-year bubble, they're telling you, and they really mean it, and you're, they're trying to protect you, Governor Cuomo, when he says he doesn't want 10 people. And it's just a whole different lens that they're looking at it, right? So thats that certainly plays a part in it, right?
0: Yeah, I think you're right about much of that. What is striking about what you're describing, though, is that It seems like you're describing a kind of reprioritization where it's not that there is an attempt to justify political positions through Jewish law, but rather that politics is just kind of overriding, perhaps because it comes with it a completely different set of facts. But that obviously causes real tensions within communities because it suggests a real clash of values between people who imagine themselves as trying to simply follow the law as it is written or as they understand it to be written and those for whom politics is first and foremost. And I'm curious if you see this as, first of all, if you see this as a rising tension and how do you ensure that political ideas don't end up cheapening Torah by kind of riding along a wave of some easy interpretation in order to achieve some immediate political end?
1: Well, I think that there is a conflict you know this government law happens to be for our best interests but the government law that was 100 years ago that said you can't wear a yarmulke or a beard or you can't have shita like the jewish ritual slaughter was attacked in i think belgium this year right so i think that the jew walks on eggshells on a tenuous line, like balancing moral values that have become outdated. I mean, look at marriage. Marriage in the United States, it's less than 50% of households. There's a substantial number of singles who will never get married, never been before, right? To a lot of people, it's like, who cares? I mean, the sanctity of the home is a Jewish priority. The first mitzvah given to Qali Yisrael, the Ish celebrates Avoselabayas, the Paschal family meal, and the understanding, the Jewish understanding of the, the importance of family, of marriage, the character of an individual is best created through a nuclear family, through a stable home. We do live with the tension that. A lot of our values, and these are values that they're not only religious values, but I put to you that they're human values. If you would go in and do a search, the success of people who come from a nuclear family, the incidence of crime, etc. So a lot of the Torah values that are both religious values as well as human values are under onslaught in the society we live in. Right? So the Jew walks on the tension of balancing the values that we've inherited that are thousands of years old and has changed the world, given the world values no other group has given. So we have a great culture that goes back so much longer than the current flesh in the pan voice on TV or whoever it may be. So we have to weigh the conflict of those values versus then the current fed. You know, we say every day at the end of Davening, Halichos Olomlo. It's right before the aleinu prayer. And the Talmud Darshans, Halichos Olam, Al Tikri Halichos. Halichos Olam means the paths of eternity belong to him. One who follows Halachos has eternal paths. And I remember my father, blessed memory, told to me, he says, How does Halichos turn into Halachos? So he, he said, Halichos means pathways. And pathways are usually temporary. Used to be the Patriots, now it's the Buccaneers, right? Until January, it was Trumpism. We're going to be looking at Bidenism, right? It went from wide ties to skinny ties. These pathways are all temporary. When we say halachos olam, eternal pathways, right, that seems to be almost a paradox, there's only one way it could be. It must be halachos. Halachos are eternal.
0: It sounds like you're expressing a kind of optimism for the future. I both hear what you're saying, and then I am trying to balance that against the very real rifts that have formed within Jewish communities. I think particularly within Orthodox Jewish communities, there are many Trump supporters. There is also a significant minority of Biden supporters, non-Trump supporters, where I see that those political tensions actually are creating serious rifts, are making it much more difficult for people, family members to talk to each other, and are also, I think as we saw a little while ago... Around the anti mass protests can lead to some amount of violence. So I'm curious, like, how it sounds like what you are saying is that those are a kind of blip along the long Jewish history.
1: No, I don't think it's a blip. I think that it's an eternal struggle between values and reality, transcendent and the now, right? The right and the left. But to cancel culture, that doesn't come from us, right? I mean, the Jews, one thing we've always had is a very healthy debate. So when you say that this type of insanity where, we, you know, I commented on the New York Times, and they actually printed this one. I said, you know, 50% of America, fractionally less, voted for a man. Are they all insane? Is everybody insane? I mean, haven't we learned as children, aren't we taught, try to put yourself into the other person's shoes. You may not agree with them but you can't say 50% of the world is insane, right? So we've lost things that in kindergarten we were taught. And I just think that what you're seeing in the orthodox community, the split, the red and blue, it's something that's endemic to America right now, sadly. It's, it's, it's way more than an orthodox issue. We have just, on the contrary, adopted this disease that has spread across the country, the inability to listen to the other person.
0: So I'm curious in the context of your show, when you were thinking about putting together a show, what it means for you to kind of achieve balance of views? Because it sounds like you are very much invested in having all parts of at least the Orthodox community represented in your conversations. I'm curious how you think about that kind of balance. And I also want to ask as part of that, as a long-time listener to the show, I think it's hard to not notice that the vast majority of your guests are men. And I'm curious how you both think about inviting men versus women on the show, and then also how you think about the range of political positions that you'd like to feature?
1: I think that what I would like to accomplish is under the rubric of halacha, which to me is halicha So that's the way I try to live my life. If the shulchanar is a defining document in your life, we should otherwise be apolitical. And if I can bring on from the very right all the way to the left, but who all work under the rubric of halacha, I've created a dialogue, and dialogue, which we see in the United States, is so missing. In Judaism, too, creating the dialogue creates real value. And people open up their eyes and they say, wow, I didn't understand that other opinion. So we've created, like, awareness, um, brotherhood. Kol Yisrael arevimzelazeh. When you understand the other person, when he's not just a number or a garb, we foster humanity. We foster love right? Now, as far as women, the overriding theme was halakha. And for the most part, it's not what they study, right? So when we've gone off of halakha to social issues, psychology, bringing up children, marriage, and so on, we've had many women who are experts in this field. But for example, last program is about end of life issues. Most women would just not really be comfortable discussing that. So it's not male or female. It's What's your area of expertise? So on child rearing, I would have a woman before I would have a man, or psychology or social issues, or et cetera. But we've had on many women over the years. For me, it's not about misogyny. It's just about looking for somebody who's published on that. We try to get somebody who's published on the area that we're discussing.
0: I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is they reflect existing inequalities within Orthodox communities, which have far more men in positions to speak to matters of Jewish law.
1: Well, you say it as an inequality. And that's a discussion because I don't see it as an inequality. I think that there is the female voice and there's the male voice and they're equally valuable. And I'll give you an example. You're male. Do you think it's a matter of inequality that Jewish heritage is matrilineal and not patrilineal? In other words, if a Jewish woman marries a non-religionist, the child is Jewish. The Jewish man marries out right? The child is not Jewish. Do you see that as a sign of inequality? I don't. I see it that there's different voices, right? And both voices are equally valuable. The man in Judaism, and I'm going to use very broad metaphors, which please do not hold me to, is sort of supposed to be the hunter-gatherer out there in the world. And it could be both intellectually or physically. And the woman is supposed to be the one who brings up future generations, who ensures the continuity of the Jewish people, who brings what was brought back and turns it into a home. Now, when we talk about the lineage, the future of the Jewish people, we say that's true the woman, nurturing comes from her, empathy comes from her. When I say comes from her, I don't mean singly, there are men who can nurture and there are men who could be empathetic, but just in broad strokes, the nurturer, the one who gives love, the one who, for the most part, creates the psyche of a child till they're four or five years old. Father's out there. The mother's doing all that. So is that unequal or is that just a different voice? Judaism believes that they're equal, but they have different voices.
0: Uh, I think we probably disagree about that, but I think that's probably for a larger discussion.
1: But if we wouldn't disagree, we wouldn't be Jewish.
0: You might be right. One more question, if that's all right. So I think there's a number of positions that you've expressed in the conversation today, which I personally disagree with about gender roles, I think, in particular. You clearly are someone who's very interested in community dialogue and having people who disagree with each other speak. I'm curious to what degree you see it as being important for people in the Orthodox community to be in conversation with people outside of it in a way that creates mutual understanding there. Because I see within the sphere that you operate, you are engaged in a project that is creating some amount of conversation and some amount of understanding. But there's also a kind of separate conversation happening also within the Jewish world, which looks very different. I'm curious how much you personally are interested in that conversation and how much you think it is important for Orthodox Jews to be involved in that conversation.
1: I think that's a complicated question. I think that it's like, it's a question on many levels. Should we be interacting with secular Jews? And then should we be reacting with the world as a whole, right? Now, as far as acting with secular Jews, which we only have five minutes, that's what I'll address. I think Chabad has done that admirably. And I think it's something that we could probably do better. But here's the conundrum. As the world becomes more and more morally, I don't wanna use the word depraved, but morally distant from our beliefs. You know, when you enter into a conversation, means you have to have an association on some level. And I'll give you an example. Moses famously, Moshe, was asked by Hashem to speak to the stone, and instead he hits the stone. And what's the metaphor here? He was supposed to speak to the people, and say, listen, God is good. He has your best interest. He he was supposed to convince, and he did, and he hit the stone. What does that mean? Why did he hit it? To enter into a dialogue, the only way to convince is if I can be vulnerable and be convinced. Moshe could not enter into a dialogue where the doubt is of God. It was too shocking to him, so he hit the stone, right? So I think to enter into a dialogue with secular means we have to take Chabat has done it admirably. I don't know what their loss ratio is, but we have to take the yeshiva boy who has never been on the internet maybe and has never debated LBGTQ issues, right? And suddenly we're thrusting him into a sphere where to have this conversation is, you better get educated, son. So there's a certain element of like, I just don't want to take that chance of infection right? And have the benefit of now being a persuader. And that's a risk. And as a leader, I understand the dynamics of that risk.
0: I appreciate you putting into those terms. I think that's an honest and frank way to frame it. And I appreciate, by the same token, you coming on the show today.
1: You'd be blessed, okay?
0: So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to David Lichtenstein. Identity crisis is a product of the Shalom Harvard Institute. It was produced this week by me, David Zvi common and edited by Alex Dillon. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, with music provided by SoCalled. Called. Special thanks this week to Yehuda Kurtzer. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover it. You can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, Anywhere else, podcasts are available. My name is David C. Coleman. You, Hooter Curtis, will be back next week. Thanks for listening.